0: Good morning. Good morning today we are continuing our series about the whole story of christ and I read this uh, anecdote a true story of a, a banquet where a famous religious leader we won 't name him, but he found himself seated to a very very beautiful woman and she was wearing a gown with a a very low neckline and he introduced himself to her and then he offered her an apple she was a little surprised Uh, she asked him why are you handing me an apple we're at this great banquet we have all this food i don't need an apple right now and he says please do take it ma'am it was only after Eve ate the fruit that she became aware of how little she had on (laughs) Someone asked me last year, this is even funnier, someone asked me last year. uh, We had this question, it was part of our vacation Bible school in Bloomington, um, and we had the kids come, and it was like stump the preacher sort of thing, where they could come and ask whatever questions they wanted, and a few um, people were up there, and we would answer questions for them, and one of the kids... Uh, sat down and he asked, why was it that after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the first thing they noticed was that they were naked? I, I didn't know what to say. Um, I, I kind of backed up, but we came back to it another day. But that, after some study and, and in a situation where we're not surrounded by children, um, we can answer it today. Weren't they always naked? You know, Adam and Eve um, were, that's how they were created, but before they ate of the fruit of the tree, they didn't think about it. They were innocent, their hearts were pure, and they were at total peace. Genesis 2.25 says, uh, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In the summertime, uh, little kids, they can strip off all their clothes and run naked through the yard, right? There's nothing wrong with that. They don't see anything wrong with it. They don't have any shame. Um, But why? One commentator noted two-year-olds they don't see any difference between their face and their knees and the parts of their body uh, which we adults insist that we cover. Only adults feel that certain parts of the body must be covered because those parts are connected with physical lust and passion. So you see before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit their hearts were pure. The same scholar noted their nakedness was innocent. It was in no way sinful. They saw no difference between a hand whose purpose was to do good deeds, a mouth with which one praises God and says kind words to others, and the parts of the body which are used to be fruitful and multiply. With every organ they could fulfill the will of God, so no organ was shameful, nor did anything need to be covered. But once they ate the fruit, that all changed. Evil entered the world and it has been here ever since. We've lost that sense of total peace that they once had. And like I said, today we are continuing part two of this series on the whole story of Christ looking from the very beginning of time. Last week we looked at the creation and Christ's role in it, and we'll go all the way to the end of time as well. And today we're looking at Jesus in the law and the sacrifices. This evening um, we've got an interesting class on Leviticus 14 and how Jesus fit into the sacrificial system and the healing system. And the law was given to humanity to restore the peace that sin had shattered. You know, put up your hand if you want peace in the world. Good, good, we're all good people. For people to live in peace, to act with love and justice, that's something everybody, no matter uh, how they think that's going to happen, we can all raise our hands to that. We all want peace. The world um, wouldn't have to live in fear. There wouldn't be violence or death or or pain or injustice. That would all be a thing of the past. And wouldn't that be great? But instead, we live in a world where it seems like there's something inside of us that just won't let that happen that we behave in a way that we will not allow peace in the world instead we just wreak havoc and destruction and we might think Why doesn't God fix this? Why doesn't he just destroy all the evil in the world? If he is good, wouldn't he do that? And some believe that because God won't destroy evil in this world, that means he can't be good, that he doesn't exist or um, that we can't trust him. And you hear that sometimes. And if we get really honest with ourselves though, we see why God doesn't destroy evil in the world. If you think about it, the evil that I see everywhere around me, the evil that, that persecutes me every day, everywhere out there, that is the same evil that's inside of me. It's part of me. We've all done wrong, and if you're young and you can't think of it, just wait. It's going to come. We've all contributed to the problem of evil, and we keep contributing to the problem of evil, so this puts us in a bind. If we want God to rid the world of evil, That means he's got to rid the world of me. That's not a great solution for me, for God to get rid of me. In fact, the story of the flood in Genesis 6 through 7 is the story of God ridding the world of evil by destroying sinful people through a massive flood, but allowing that small remnant, Noah's family, to survive. And then Noah, after the flood, built an altar and he worshiped God. And the text continues in verse 21, the Lord smelled a smoothing aroma. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8, 21 through 22. You know, the flood, it destroyed evil by destroying sinful people. But it wasn't a permanent solution or a solution that God will use again because the people who were spared kept doing evil. He got rid of most of us. But there are still a few, and they kept doing evil, and, and God even said their imaginations caused them to keep doing evil. Their imaginations are full of evil. Romans 1 says that there are people who invent evil things to do. That's why we don't have a checklist in the Bible of things we should and should not do under Christ, because we keep coming up with new ways of doing evil. And it kind of proves the point. Without destroying all of mankind, this wasn't going to work. God is going to have to find another way and he says he will. God has chosen not to rid the world of evil because it would mean ridding the world of us who find when we look inside that there's a conflict. The Apostle Paul himself, a man who turned from uh, persecuting the church to death to being uh, its chief leader in the first century found in himself that conflict, that chaos. He says, as it is this conflict. He saw this evil inside of him and it was confusing to him because he wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to please God, but evil prevailed. Paul, he couldn't resolve this conflict on his own. It seemed that as long as Paul existed, evil would exist. As long as Paul were left here, evil would prevail. But this is one reason why the whole story of Jesus is so incredible. It's so remarkable. The Bible tells us that in a nutshell, that God is so good that he is not only going to rid the world of evil, but he's going to do it without destroying you and me. He's going to find a way, unlike the flood that destroyed sinful people to destroy evil, he has a way that he can get rid of evil out of the world Without destroying me. How's he going to do that? How in the world is God going to remove the stain of sin, the actions and the consequences of evil, the pollution, the damage, trusted, and ruined environment of sin? Well, let's jump back into our story of Adam and Eve, because from the very beginning, God was always pointing forward to this and gives us a glimpse at the solution. Adam and Eve, after they had disobeyed God, they found that their hearts were now tainted with sinful thoughts that they'd never had before. Jesus said, Matthew fifteen nineteen, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. You see, there are no evil thoughts inside them until they ate of the fruit. But after they'd eaten, that knowledge they gained shamed them. It made them ashamed of who they were. And worse than that, their newfound knowledge separated them from God. The final punishment of God upon Adam and Eve was for them to leave his presence. It says in Genesis three twenty four, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God kicked them out. He evicted them from their home. But God didn't completely turn his back on them. Before God sent them away, he gave them a special gift in, in Genesis three twenty-one: The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Now, this is interesting for several reasons. It points forward to the story of Christ. And it's interesting because first, Adam and Eve, they already had clothes. They already made something, right? What kind of clothes did Adam and Eve have? They had fig leaves, right? Genesis 3, 7 tells us they re- realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You know, I've seen a lot of different kinds of leaves, various shapes and sizes But I don't get the feeling that ever wearing a leaf out in public is going to be very comfortable. It doesn't matter how you sew it together or put it together. It's not going to be a a great thing to wear. It's not going to cover you up very much. And apparently these leaves didn't do much for Adam and Eve either. When God comes walking into the garden, what do they do? Try to hide themselves because they knew what they had wasn't enough. And when God calls out and asks Adam where he is, Adam replies, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid in Genesis 3.10. you think about that. Up until that point, they thought their fig leaves were doing the job, but suddenly the leaves leave them feeling naked. And when did Adam realize that his fig leaves weren't doing the job? When God came into his presence. It was when Adam found himself in God's presence that he began to realize that his man-made coverings, they weren't enough. Nakedness had been a symbol of our sinfulness ever since the garden. Whenever a person's sins are discovered, what do we say? They're exposed, right? Jesus warns us not to be found naked and exposed when he comes again and in Revelation 16 15 it says behold I come like a thief blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now people understand this reality you know we know our own nakedness we know our own sin and shame personally Well live our lives working out in the garden, doing something out in the house, working at work, at the desk, whatever, and suddenly it hits us out of the blue. You ever get this feeling? You just feel that sense of shame. You realize eh, that was something I shouldn't have done. That was something that that uh, was opposed to God, that, that was evil or, or shameful in some way, and it just hits us, and we realize we are exposed. We remind ourselves of something we've said or something we've done or something that, that we've thought in the past. And it just brings this wave of shame into our lives. And people, we know our nakedness. And sometimes we try to cover it up, but that still fails. Just like Adam and Eve, they tried their fig leaves. They thought that would cover them up. But as soon as they were in the presence of God, they knew it wasn't enough. And so the first intriguing thing about the story of Adam and Eve is that they already had clothes. They already made something, but they knew it wasn't enough. God had to make something else for them. Their man-made garments weren't sufficient. The second thing I find interesting here is how God supplied their clothing. He gave them clothing. He made it for them. He did all, all of the work. They did nothing. All Adam and Eve did was put it on. That's their contribution to this. And notice the kind of clothing that God supplied. What kind of garments were these that God gave them? They're animal skins, right? Genesis 3.21 says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. Where would God get garments of skin from? It has to be from an animal, right? Animals are what have Skin, and how do you get the skin off of an animal? It has to die. You know, when God killed these animals to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, this was the beginning of animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices were made all throughout the Old Testament to pay for sin. And the law of Moses repeatedly taught the Israelites that every sin that they committed was punishable by death. But since everyone Sin, God allowed them to pay for their sins by offering something in their place, a sacrifice of a pure and spotless animal. Hebrews 9.22, it tells us the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no Forgiveness. I think that's the verse in the bulletin this week. Leviticus 17:11 taught the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, in order for God to give mankind forgiveness, in order for God to destroy evil without destroying us. Something had to die. But why would God have an animal die for Adam and Eve? Well. God had created animals for them. How many of us have pets? Lauren and I, we've got a a growing number. It seems like it's always growing a little bit more. Barry and Frankie and and Shasta. Imagine you're Adam and Eve, you're in the garden. You're being down by the stream or you have a fish nibbling at your foot because you're unafraid of it or you're sitting there on a tree with a a, a leopard or a a lion resting its massive head on you. And these animals, they were Adam and Eve's constant companions. They were were like pets to the first couple. And all these animals in the garden, they were gentle and they were loving and they were loved by Adam and Eve in, in return. And one of these gentle companions, one of these pets had to die to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve, you know, throughout, throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly drove home how terrible sin was. Every time a child of God sinned, they required. blood sacrifice. In the days of the tabernacle, you'd see people lined up at the gate and their sacrifices being offered for the things that they had done. And day after day after day, sacrifices were offered up to God. And these sacrifices, they costed the life and the blood of an innocent animal to pay for their sins. A price had to be paid. And the blood was the dearest price that could be paid to us. If we're not familiar with the practice, we don't see it around us, it it seems strange. But for the Israelites, it was a powerful ritual symbol of God's justice and of His grace. Why His grace? Well, remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world, and because of that, I should be removed. Humanity as a whole is a contributor to the evil in the world. We should be removed, but God is allowing an animal's life to be a substitute and symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to make restitution for or to cover over. I think that's in the bulletin as well. And it means something you do to show remorse for your actions, that you understand how by your actions you have caused damage to your relationships or to other people uh, or to yourself. It was necessary to do something that costs us dearly to demonstrate that we understand the cost of our evil actions and how they cause pain or distress um, or or something else, some other damage to uh, the people around us. And the sacrifice on the animal, which was costly, accomplished this. It showed just how damaging sin was. So in the Bible, God created this way, this ritual of animal sacrifice for people to demonstrate that they understood how serious God took sin, how serious sin truly is, the impact of selfish actions. And then they understood that there was a very real cost associated with restoring the peace that was there before sin. And that started with Adam and Eve in the garden, taking away the life of something innocent so they didn't have to be destroyed. The third thing we notice here in Genesis 3 is what it took to clothe them. Something had to die. The animals that God used to make Adam and Eve's garments, they were the first deaths on earth, as far as we know. Nothing else had died ever before this. And these creatures, they died at God's hand. They were literally the first sacrifices ever made in man's history. And in the Bible, our sin is described as polluting or or defiling the land and making it unclean and so the priest would symbolically wash away the damage by uh, sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple and we'll see some of that uh, this evening so does the animal's blood cleanse things well not really in in fact blood's a, a staining agent it's going to cause um perhaps more stains around but this is a symbol and it's a symbol perhaps we're not used to. The blood represents the life and the sprinkling of the blood by the priest is this representation of how God is cleaning away the result, the consequences of evil in their community. And in the Bible, this process is called Purification, and so the temple and the land now became a clean space where God and His people can once again live together and the peace that was shattered by sin. And so this ritual it makes things right between Israel and God, and and more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and His grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, receiving the forgiveness from God, ideally you think this would motivate the people uh, to start living right, right. You know if. God is showing how serious the consequences of sin are. If they have to kill something innocent to repay uh, the damage that they have caused through their sin, you would think they'd get their act together, that they would stop doing this, that they would start to understand the seriousness of sin, but they didn't. That's the problem we saw with the flood. Yes, evil people were destroyed to eliminate evil from the world, but the remnant that remained didn't get the message. They kept on sinning. They kept on doing evil, and evil was still in the world because people were still in the world. Something had to change. The sacrificial system didn't work. The flood didn't work to eliminate this evil. God doesn't want us going through the motions of religious observance or just going to church or pretending to be holy or looking good on the outside. That's the fixes that we put up even today to say we're going to cover up evil with these actions when really we aren't tipping the scale on the inside we're remaining unchanged and still evil something about doing evil turns the human heart to stone and it's a a reoccurring process and god wants our hearts to be turned to hearts of flesh ezekiel 36 it says for i will take you out of the nations i will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. And that is what God wants. People who live not out of a a remorseful relationship, but in a loving relationship with him, who have the Spirit of God in us, moving us to live lives of faithfulness to God. And so Isaiah, who we'll look at next week, looked ahead to a time when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil. And this would happen in a surprising way. The king would come as a servant, not just a servant, but he would also suffer and he would die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice, a life offered as a sacrifice, atonement. And in fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he, came, uh, when he said he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 28, 28 says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to the sacrifice atonement, And all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all the evil and pain in this world. That's the meaning behind Jesus' words. But there's also more to the story. The, The Bible says that Jesus' death was not final. That's the true difference here. The sacrifices that we read about all throughout the Old Testament, they were final. Something died for our sins. Something died because we caused evil, but Jesus' death was different because while he died because we sinned, it didn't stop there. He rose from the dead and he is the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means he lives on to offer any of us life those who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices from Adam and Eve and the death of that first animal all the way through the complicated sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament, it was all pointing forward to Jesus. One person uh, I think rightly noted that God made the first and last sacrifices for man's sin. Here in the Garden of Eden, God sacrificed the first innocent animal to cover sin, and it was on Mount Calvary that God made the last sacrifice of his sinless son to cover our sin. In the Garden, God supplied Adam and Eve with garments, and on Mount Calvary, he supplied us with our garments. His gift to them involved the death of an innocent animal, and his gift to us involves the gift of his son, a pure and spotless offering to cover our nakedness. You know, Genesis tells us that God sacrificed those first animals to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. But how does God cover our nakedness in the sacrifice of Christ? That answer is found in Galatians 3.27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. When we were buried in the waters of baptism, we were literally wrapped in Jesus. His righteousness covers us like a garment. What once was exposed is no longer because of him. And that, of course, was the genius of God's design. For when we go down into the waters of baptism, we are literally wrapped in the waters, wrapped like a garment. And the garment we received through Jesus Christ was far better than the ones that Adam and Eve were given. Their garments, they eventually wore out animal skin wears out. Their garments would eventually be torn and stained. Again, their garments would ultimately become shabby and not worth wearing, but worse than that, the garments that God gave Adam and Eve would never allow them back into God's presence. No matter how long they wore them, how well they wore them, they'd never be allowed to re-enter that garden that He had prepared for them as their home. But when you and I accepted Christ as our Lord and Master, that all changed. Hebrews 10, 14, it says, by one sacrifice, meaning the sacrifice of Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You know, God is so good that he can perfect this world. He can destroy evil without destroying us. You know, Unlike Adam and Eve, the garment that Jesus supplied us with gives us the privilege of boldly coming into God's presence and enjoying his love and compassion on a personal level. In baptism, we are clothed in him. We're no longer exposed to the damage of sin. We're restored to the peace that was once shattered by sin. And if you're here this morning and you realize that you want that peace, that Jesus' sacrifice makes it possible, all you need to do is join him in that death and burial and resurrection by dying to your past, being buried in the waters of baptism, rising up to live a new life. If you're ready to do that, we're here to help. Come to the front of the room as we stand and as we sing. Would you be free from the-
1: Get that lesson, Brandon. If you are visiting with us, we want to encourage you to come back and be with us at every any opportunity you have. Uh, we've got a few uh, who are on our sick list. Those are shut ins. Uh, remember those who are about to go test and treatments. Um, may you keep them in your prayers, if you will. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to pick up a bulletin in and, and the foyer there. There's many things that are going on this week. Um, this Monday will be the Secret Sister Reveal Party at 6.30, uh, and also there is forms in the foyer. If you'd like to be part of that, uh, we'd encourage you to get one of them forms filled out, and uh, Judy would like to see them turned in as soon as possible. Also, uh, uh, Wednesday, it will be our girls' training class at 7 o'clock. Uh, this Thursday also would be the, the Women's Bible Study at 6.30, and uh, be ready to talk. On week two of that study, also uh, don't forget the Christmas party um, December fourteenth and side dishes and desserts are appreciated, and also the men's leadership meeting will be uh, the fourteenth at four o'clock i don't have anything else. Is there any other announcements? Yes problem like, uh, prayers for, uh, for people in the attack. At Naval Air
2: Station in Pensacola Friday morning,
1: one of my friends was there. Uh, he was okay, but several were killed, several injured, so like pray for those in the family. Okay, like Rob said, uh, those who were killed and attacked here just recently at Pensacola, remember them, in your prayers, and their families. Also, um, May uh, lost a, a co worker here the other day, and they had a funeral for her, so remember uh, Georgia Adams' family, if you will. Anything else?
2: Number 790. Please stand as sing 790, Lord Take Control. We'll be closed with a prayer. My heart, my mind, my body, my soul. Yeah. Please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we once again come before you just thanking you for all the blessings you've added to our lives, God. You've just given us so many things to make this uh, life on earth more pleasant for us and we just thank you. Thank you for you know, this congregation that we have that we can come together and praise you and we can do that without fear of persecution. We know that that's a blessing that so many people in this world don't have and we so often take that for granted, and we just want to take this time to thank you for that. Thank you for our uh, homes, our physical families, our, uh, the money that we have that you've given to us. Help us to uh, give that money back to you in ways that we can help others. God, you've, you're just so good to us, and we love you, and we praise you, and we ask that you help us to love you more every day. In Jesus' Sammy, we pray. Amen.